It's normally not our practice as pastors to speak out of our personal lives, but sometimes it's good for the congregation to to know that pastors are, are people, that we have desires, that we have longings, we have needs. And some of those are sometimes manifest even in conflicts which take place in our homes. This past Friday night, we began as a unified family. We all had a joint desire to have a burger. And I thought, I thought somebody would laugh at that point. I don't know. <laughs> the desires and longings of the pastor. Well, we, we wanted a burger. And we went in a quest to find a, a good burger, an affordable burger. And so we began to do what you can do in this modern age. We began to search out all of the options that were available to us. We went online. We found various menus. And we found out that if you want a good burger, it's going to cost you. It is expensive to purchase a burger these days. And I don't know who tracks the economics of the, the, the going rate of, of a cheeseburger, but it has clearly gone up. We found that the prices were somewhere between 8 and $18 to purchase a cheeseburger. Yes, we could have gone to McDonald's, but we wanted an actual burger, not like sort of a pretend burger. And so even though we were bemoaning the prices of, of a cheeseburger, we still went to bed that night with full bellies. And we did that because we live in a world of enormous prosperity. Despite serious burger inflation, burgers are still affordable and very edible. And it says something about, about what we have access to in this world. How many good things come our way. We were, in the search of burgers, able to find, with every website of a place that sold a burger, you could find a dozen different variations. But then at the end of the list of variations, you found a list of ingredients. You could customize your burger. If you do the, the, the permutations and combinations, there's probably on the order of tens of thousands of different kinds of burgers that you can experience. Some of the toppings, and I know I'm going to set you to thinking forward, but were you could top your burger with fried pickles or fried eggs, with brisket or pork, with chili or pimento cheese, with bernaise sauce or truffle oil. Those are all options for burgers. And again, the point is that we were not merely eating to survive. We were, we were eating in a fashion that was beyond belief for most people in most of recorded human history. People have not had options like this. This is all happening in an economic downturn. And again, you're reminded that prosperity is not just economic. It's measured across a spectrum of, of different things. There's, there's a forum called the, the Legatum Prosperity Index who tracks the, the prosperity of individual countries. They do 167 different countries that they will evaluate. They have something like 104 different variables they look at, and it turns into basically 12 categories. Things like personal freedom, health, education, safety and security, a pro-business environment. And those things will tell you a lot about a place where you live. Certainly you could imagine those in different countries. The Amer America's fallen down the list from, from uh, seven or eight years ago where they were about 10. Now it's down to about 22. But again, we're not suffering that much. But among the things that they listed, there was something that, that was notably missing in terms of the ways in which you track prosperity. On their list of, of all those different calculations that they make, there were none that were concerned with spiritual prosperity. Whether you're one of the 22 million U.S. millionaires, or you have good health care, or you can get your customized burger delivered within 30 minutes to your house, the number one measure for what constitutes a good life, what constitutes well-being, has to be how you are spiritually prospering. And so this morning we're coming back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those first two verses of the chapter, and those are going to be a setup. They're going to prepare us 
for, for what's coming, but they're worth meditating on for, for what they say in and of themselves, what the Apostle Paul wants this church to know as he begins to shift his tone. And so this morning we're going to dive into those, moving off the compliments and, and, and the endorsements he's given to this congregation, moving towards pointing them in a direction of what spiritual prosperity will look like for them, that we may spiritually prosper ourselves. So let's pray together and let's ask the Lord's help as, as we do this. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your kindness to us that you love your people and that you speak your truth to us. You have not left us without a word. And pray, Father, that word that you give to us would be heard this morning, that it would be rightly spoken, rightly understood, and rightly applied in our lives, that you may get that glory that you deserve from us and that you would be well pleased with how we live in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Begins here, you notice those words that that you probably had a laugh when you first heard those because... Paul begins this, this chapter with the words, finally. And then you notice as you look to your right across the page, you see there's two full chapters that are left behind Paul's finally. He's only got a three in front of that. It's, it's hardly a finally. Preachers sometimes do that, and we'll say it's their prerogative to go on and to make a point to, to ensure that people are understanding what, what you would want them to know. But Paul does it not in the sense of he's saying that he's wrapping up, but in the sense that he's saying he said several things that are of, of vital importance, but now he's going to move into a different section, a final concern that's going to take them in places that they need to go. What came prior to this in the first three chapters were, were a, a multitude of, of, of encouragements that Paul has from his memory with them and from the experience of others among them in this church. Paul celebrates things that he's seen in them. And let me remind you of some of the ones. Going back to chapter 1, you can follow along if you want to, in verse 3. Paul, Paul remembers, that he says um, in prayer, he is remembering without ceasing their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are commendable. Verse 6, he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. He celebrates their ability to suffer together. Verses 9 and 10, he says, you turn, from, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven. He, he's recognizing that they have new priorities and a new eschatology. Verses 11 and 12, he, he says, you know how I exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is a word which they received as we learn in verse 13. He says, you received the word of God which you heard from us. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Verse 14, chapter 2, he says, you became imitators of the church of God, churches of God which are in Christ Jesus. And you suffered similar things. Verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, Timothy brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have a good remembrance of us. One of the things Paul celebrates is that there's a continued happy relationship between he and this church. And then finally, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, he gives them this benediction. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And what Paul is doing there is, is what... Any good coach or teacher or parent will do if they want to see things encouraged and repeated in people, they compliment those things. He, he, he points out the goodness congregation. He says, there are all these things that you are doing so well. 
that I'm so pleased to see in you, that I remember about you, that, that are the, the joy of my heart, that have warmed me in, in, in my, my pastoral ministry to you to see how you have responded to that. Paul is, 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 has given them something to say, okay, good. I should do more of that because we all like compliments. We all like to be affirmed when we do the right thing. But Paul also knows because Paul is full of wisdom that just because you compliment people in good things does not mean that they will become perfected in those good things. It doesn't mean that they will, they will be attuned to those other areas of their life in which there are deficiencies and there is work to be done and there, there are places that they haven't yet considered for all the good that they're doing. And so we have the shift. Paul says, finally, he moves on. He goes into a different direction and he's going to make clear to those who don't yet get it to those who may have joined the church recently after his departure, or to some who have even faltered since Paul's absence in their faith, he's going to make clear to them what they must do and be and become as a follower of Christ. And so we look as the verse goes on, he says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Appreciate the tone that he gives there when he calls them brothers. He speaks to them as, as his Christian family. He knows that these are people who have received the adoption as sons through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has welcomed all of these from Thessalonica. These Gentiles have been brought into his family. They have his name placed upon them. They have an ownership of, of, of what, is, what God has given them, that inheritance that belongs to those who are sons of God. But it's also important when you think about that, that there's a, there's a negative context in which the call to be brothers and sisters in Christ exists. Remember what the Lord spoke in Matthew 10, 21, when he was warning his disciples. He said, now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That's what's going to happen in this, in the coming age, Jesus tells us. The separation of blood kin which makes the church as family all the more important. So Jesus also, also spoke in Luke 18, verse 29. He said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in the present time and in the age to come eternal life. He says that, that, that though you may lose family in this world, you may be separated from those in, uh, uh, that, that you are connected to by blood who don't know Christ. There's another family which is being offered for you and that family eternally. And so Paul speaks to them as, as brothers, as family. But there's also something else in how he speaks here. There, there's a note of authority in what he says. And certainly that could be a part of family. Families are, are, are not just brothers and sisters. They're fathers and mothers their children. And so Paul has spoken to them already back in chapter 2, verse 7. Paul said, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And then just a couple of verses later, a couple of verses later, Paul says in 1 Thess 2, 11, he says, as you know how we exhorted you and comforted you and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And so he has that authority in which he is speaking to them. But there's one level beyond that. He's not just giving them fatherly encouragement and what they must be. But one, one commentator has recognized in this, there's actually a, a formula that, that is being represented here. Paul is picturing something that's like a diplomatic letter. It is something that is friendly, that is warm, but it is decidedly more than a polite suggestion. Paul is speaking with authority because he's speaking from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them to do this in the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking at the text, brethren, we urge and exhort you in 
the Lord Jesus. Paul is a man in Christ. He is speaking to those who are in Christ. And so there's a different set of expectations that belong to those. It is a burden to be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not like the rest of the world who operates in their own autonomy, doing things however they feel, whatever they can get away with, whatever does them the best. We, we don't get to do calculations for how we're going to live life that way. We live under the authority of the word. This is very much how your elders in the church speak to you. Jesus made this abundantly clear. Listen to Matthew chapter 20. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. It's a reminder not only for, for elders, but for parents and all in authority as well. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25, he called his disciples to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. In verse 26 he says, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders in their service in the church is not an, and it's not an exercise of authority. The authority is given to them. It is an exercise in service to Christ and in service to you. Elders don't get to have a personal agenda. They don't get to run on a platform. They don't, they don't campaign in order to come into office. They are called into their office because they have proven character. They are men who know the lordship of Christ and who live under it. They are called as those from among their brethren. They are peers who are, who are called to serve in the office of ruling elder. And in the office of pastor as well. And the agenda that they take with him into office is Christ's agenda, and that's known on the front end. His gospel, his glory, his kingdom, his commands. And so what Paul is speaking to them is clear. It's not speaking for his own benefit, but speaking for theirs and speaking in honor and glory to Christ. So Paul asks them or urges or exhorts or encourages them. to. He, he, is, he is reminding them that this is the Lord's authority that you are coming under. And this is what he's done throughout the letter. You go back again to verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, we, we, Our exhortation did not come from error and cleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. He, he knows that he is a man who's being examined. God is going to hold him accountable for every word that he speaks. And so he has to speak what Christ would want spoken. He says the same in verses 10 and 12. Uh, of, of chapter 2, your witnesses, and God also. He doesn't mind calling God as a witness on, on, on what he did in ministry. He says, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is his witness. He's doing all of these things because... It's for the glory of God who has called them into his kingdom. Again, in chapter 3, he speaks of Timothy, our brother and minister, and he qualifies it of God. Timothy is not a minister of himself. He, Paul wants to make clear this is who he is serving. He's our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish and encourage you concerning your faith. And then Paul, maybe in perhaps the most clarity he'll speak to, if you jump ahead to chapter 5, he says in verse 12, he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. Why? 
for their work's sake. What work is that? It's the work of Christ. It's, they are working and laboring in honor to Christ. This is part of the reason when you see your pastor stand up and we wear robes, it's not like a, a fashion choice that we make to, to, to wear these, these, these heavy polyester things across the parking lot. Even this morning was not that pleasant. The reason we do it is because when we stand in the pulpit, we are not representing ourselves. We're representing the Lord. It's his word which is being taught. And, and, and our duty is to, to make sure that you are encouraged by that word, not by our own words. Because we know our, our foibles and our failures, our incompetencies. But the word is sufficient for you to do those things what you most need. So Paul said again back in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, Affectionately longing for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you became dear to us. He wanted to give them the gospel. He wanted them to know what Christ had to offer, and they had been changed by it. And this is what Paul gave himself to constantly. Paul paid the price for, for doing what he did and bringing them the gospel. He was, was constantly full of his life of trials, of sorrows, and of suffering because of the work of the Lord. But Paul had been purchased by Christ, by the blood of Christ. And so how could he not give himself in service to Christ? And so that's the standard that, that, that he has is his service to Christ. It's, is it's got to be according to the word of God. Let's so look again back in our, in our chapter Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul says, Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Paul's goal for them was to abound. Whatever, whatever abounding means there, he wanted them to have some of it and then more of it and, and then more. That they should, they should have so much abundance, an abundance of abundance, you could say. And it's kind of interesting because we hear that, that Paul would desire that they would abound. That's not the kind of thing that we, we, you know, that we typically say to people unless we're going to say it in the form of just some sort of a kind of a benign, benevolent um, kind of truism like be careful or, uh, or good luck or have a nice trip. It's, it's not exactly a, an exhortation. It's just sort of a nice thing to say. And so Paul wants them to abound. But maybe if you looked at an ESV translation, it... It helps you because it will point you more specifically to what form that abundance takes place. The SV reads in, chap, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. It's putting the emphasis more directly on the means whereby that abounding takes place. And what that abounding is in, it is in obeying the Lord. Walking according to the commandments of God, being pleasing to God. That is where Paul wants them to abound. He's saying, here's where the blessing is in walking in the way of the Lord. Here's where happiness is in pleasing God. Here's where true growth takes place is in conforming yourself to the image of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is where Paul is talking about spiritual prosperity, that thing that we ought to be most concerned about in the economics of our life. What is happening to us is that we are spiritually progressing. You probably know it by the terms progressive sanctification. If you look back at your bulletin, this is what we were looking at this morning in Larger Catechism 75. We asked the question, what is sanctification? And the Westminster Divines, they labored hard on this. And in their definition, they actually capture for us the two sides of sanctification. The emphasis is clearly on progressive sanctification, but there is a part of it that we give attention to that we know as definitive 
or positional sanctification, the, the declaration of holiness. You can see that in what, what they write there. Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them renewed in their whole man after the image of God having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts. There's a sense where that is, that is definitive sanctification. It is very closely tied to the, 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 the act of justification. They're almost indistinguishable in parts, but you can say this appropriately, that it's a work of God's spirit to do the work of definitive sanctification to declare someone holy. We see this is, this is what the scriptures teach frequently about believers as they've been converted. Ephesians 5.25, in that direction to, to husbands, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives, and says, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. There is this work on the front end in which our sanctification, our being set apart to God, our being declared holy, which is all those words are synonymous, is that all of that is accomplished by Christ when we are converted is that we are made clean, we are set apart, we are declared holy, we become separate from all the rest of the world. Paul echoes the idea in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That Christ is the one who is doing these things. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul also says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You could could make the distinction this way. Justification is the act of God on our behalf to declare us righteous for the sake of Christ. All that action is something that is outside of you. It is something that is a declaration that God makes about you and concerning you, how he's going to regard you from heaven. But then definitive sanctification is something that is happening to you and in you, where you are both declared holy and you are made holy our larger catechism again in chapter 77 it it, it clarifies this to a certain degree for us if you want to look in the back of your your psalter hymnals you go to about page 948 pastor robbins does this sometimes so i'm going to do it look in the back of your trinity psalter hymnals page 948 question 77 and ask wherein do justification and sanctification differ And it, the answer is, although sanctification be inseparably, inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth or accounts the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables the exercise thereof. In the former sit is pardoned, in the other it is subdued. It's making the point that, that, that our, our, our justification is, is, a, is a legal holiness, but our sanctification is an inherent holiness. We are set apart to God, for God, and in that our natures are changed. And again, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. This is why we read from Ezekiel 36. Part of that, that, that new covenant declaration for what the Lord is going to do when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
Paul echoes this in Romans 6.6. 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then he says in four, verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul, Paul writes there that the Spirit of God has done something to you so that you are no longer in bondage to sin. You no longer have to obey the flesh. You no longer have to live according to your lusts is that you can, you can actually live and do what God requires of you. You have the ability to obey. Again, from the larger catechism, it says those graces are stirred up and increased and strengthened. So as they more and more die into sin and rise into newness of life, and that's where we begin to talk about progressive sanctification. The Lord has changed us in our definitive sanctification to enable us to live holy lives because of the power that's at work within us. And then in time, we grow in that holiness as more and more we die to sin and we live to righteousness. Larger Catechism 77 says that they are growing up into perfection, even though not perfect in this life. Now, why go into that theological calculus? Why, why get into the fine details and definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification? Why, why talk about the difference from, from, from justification? It's so that you can understand yourself so that you can understand what's been done to you and for you. And so you can know what to expect from you in this life. Paul is saying that you should have expectations of yourself. When he calls you to abound, he's reminding you that sanctification is not optional. Sanctified or sanctified is who you are. And, and Paul speaks, do you remember how he opened up 1 Corinthians First Corinthians is that book that's written to that congregation that is just the biggest mess of all messes in the church. You've got to go back to, to, to the book of Judges to find people that are doing worse as a group than, than the church of Corinth. But Paul begins that letter for all the things that he has to say to them. He begins by saying this, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all in every place, who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. He says they are saints, they are holy ones, they are set apart to God. He's reminding them that they have a new identity because they have been changed from the inside out. And he says it's time for the out to show up. It's time to, to see the progress taking place. It's time to see the change. They were changed in their nature and in their standing and their identity. And now it's time because of the power that's at work within them to bear fruit. Paul says it in Romans 6 this way. He says, but now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Sanctification is, who you, is how you have been made. You are sanctified. And now progressive sanctification is not optional. Paul says you must abound in holy living. Again, we see this in other places. If you go back to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. He prays for them, gives this benediction to them that they would grow in their love for one another. He says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. He's saying that, that there should be this, this, this firming and this fixing of what a holy life looks like. Is that, is that you should be righting the, the wrongs in your life and you should be, you should be working in such a way that, that those rights become normal where you're choosing obedience over sin. Establishing your hearts blameless in holiness. He says the form this takes is walking 
with and, and, and pleasing God. It's going in the way. And, that, and that's, that's the Old Testament language that, that, that God used. You could read multiple examples of it. In Genesis chapter 5, Enoch is described three times as one who walked with God. And then he was not. He was taken by the Lord. Noah is described as one who walked with God. Abraham is commanded from God. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And these are people that we know that by faith they, they please God and they had acts of obedience Those who are doing the will of God are walking in God and they are pleasing God. This is the right expectation for all those who come to Christ is they would walk with God and please God. As I said before, Paul, when he began this section, he says, finally then, brethren, he's opening up another section. He's beginning to say several things to them. And and here's here's what's coming next. Tonight we'll come back, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And that's God's call to holiness, and particularly in the area of sexual sanctification. He says that that believers are going to live differently in this sense. They cannot look like the world. A few verses down, 9 and 10, there's going to be a call to love. Again, repeated from before. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, a call to self-discipline and to hard work. Chapters, or verses 13 through 18, a call to the hope of the resurrection. He's going to say that, that part of holy living is going to be a, a right eschatology. Along with that, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, a call to watchfulness. That, that, that saints have, an, opportun- or have a, an obligation to keep their eyes open and looking around. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5, a, a call to honor ministers. Which accords with what was, was said before about the kind of ministry that they have to you. And then, and then maybe this is where, where it goes from 7 to being 7 plus, but... Verses 14 through 19, the closing of the book, he, he gives this call to good order and discipline in the church. He, he provides a multitude of things that are to be expected among Christians to live together who will please God. And so again, Lord willing, come back tonight as we consider that first call to sanctification. But, but let's, let's go back and let, let's think about how, how, do, how do we own what Paul says about us and to us. This call to abound, to walk with God, to, to please God, this sort of open exhortation that's going to have to be explained by in more detail in messages to come. The first question to ask is, is it possible to please God? And that might seem like a silly question in light of, of, of what we've just heard from this. But there are actually a multitude of theologies, and not, not even among liberals, not among those who don't really care what the Word of God says, but among people who take the Word of God seriously, there are a multitude of theologies that that say pleasing God is not something that Christians can do. Let me give you a a couple of suggestions why they would say this is true. Some people say that, some people do it from sort of a hyper-Calvinistic standpoint. God has foreordained and determined everything, so nothing we do really matters. Another one that says that that everything that we do is so tainted by sin, everything is polluted, that there's no form of obedience which could be pleasing to God. Another way is, 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 is a, a sort of a Christocentric version that says that, that God is so focused on looking at the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's so pleased with me and who I am in Christ that there's nothing I can do to displease Him. There's no offense I can make to God because He's always seeing Christ in my place. And there are other people who say that any attempt to please God is, is just legalism and, and, and self-justification. And you hear all those, and I hope you recognize the 
in each one of those, there is, there is a foundation of truth. There is something that they are grabbing onto that is a, a, a profound teaching of Scripture. It is, it is a, a glorious part of our theology, but there is clearly a problem with each one. And I could, I could go in and we could spend a lot of time breaking down each one, explaining all of those, but we could just simply do the, the very obvious thing and say that's not what Scripture teaches. Those conclusions are a flat denial of Scripture. And if you've ever been taken captive to, to one of those ideas, you should repent. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, chapter eight uh, verses 8 through 14. I might encourage you to turn there so you can see this. You've heard this many times in your life. But see it again in light of, of that concern. Romans 8, 8, Paul says, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But those, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, or you could say who walk with God, these are sons of God. As a believer and only as a believer, you can live a life that's pleasing to God. And so we can own what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our, we are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. We can accept what Christ says to us when he says, So likewise, when you have done all things which you are commanded, say you are unprofitable servants. We have done what our duty was to do. But in those verses, we hear those verses and we remind ourselves that those are pictures of humility before God. It's a broken nation that has sinned greatly. It's a servant before his master. And we should constantly be saying such about ourselves. But humility is not an excuse for sin. We're commanded in Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 15, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is clean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Never let your theologizing allow you to, to out-theologize the Scripture themselves. God loves Christian obedience. Those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, children who have been adopted by Him, their call is to give glory to Him in how they live. They are to abound spiritually. And so the next question is this, are you abounding spiritually? Are, are you growing in grace I would encourage you that it's very much about how you receive the word of God. There are two questions in, in the larger catechism. I'm very fixed on the larger catechism today, but just, just stay with it. Larger catechism 159 says, How is the word of God to be preached by those who are called thereunto? 
It answers they are called to labor in the ministry of the word. They are to preach sound doctrine, diligently in season and out of season, plainly not in enticing words of man's wisdoms, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory, their conversion, edification, and salvation. The call is to, to, to preach abundantly what the scriptures teach. And the next question says, how is it to be heard what is preached? The answer, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. As the word of God, meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. The Westminster Divines, they could have been really concise, and they could have said, preach like Paul and hear like the Thessalonians. They would have cut, cut out a lot of, you know, a lot of details. But they, they're getting the point. They're saying to you, when you the, if the word of God is being preached, and demand that it be preached, but come ready, come expectant, come hungry, come wanting what is being offered. Make yourself prepared to hear the word. Want to be taught and to be fed and to be nourished and to be exhorted and convicted and comforted. All of those things. You need all of those things. Wherever you are, however you're coming, those things are being offered to you by the word. And if your preachers don't preach that way, get rid of them. You deserve, well, you don't deserve better, but you can't afford to have less. You need better than that. Let me say a last thing about abounding, what it means to, to, to abound and to, to, to walk with the Lord and to be pleasing to God. Think of the context of the church in Thessalonica. This is a church that is already beset with persecution. They are already suffering because they've listened to this crazy man come into their town and preach this foreign word about this, this, this strange deity that they should give themselves to worshiping and worshiping him alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul brought pain into this group of people. But that pain came with life. It came with salvation. It, became, it came with being made right with God. But they were facing trials, and no one likes trials. And most of us, when we enter into trials, our immediate instinct is to get out of them, to mitigate the pain as much as we can, to avoid the conflict and make it go away. That's, that, that tends to be the, the, the first thing that we want. But the first thing that, that we should lean into is that we should lean into persevering in our faith. And persevering can only happen when there is something to persevere, and that is a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that helps you deal with the pain that comes into your life. And the pleasure as well. Paul wants to orient this, this church. When he speaks to them, he is constantly driving back their, their, their minds to this one particular point that all of these things are to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we, exert, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. He says, you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul wants them grounded in Christ. And Paul has said as much that that is the grounding for him in all his situations. He said in Philippians 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to, be, to abound everywhere. And in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And how is it that he does all these things? You know the answer. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
If you are going to abound in the Lord, if you're going to be pleasing to God, if you're going to walk with the Lord, it's got to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your hope firmly on him. Set your hope firmly on the word that he gives to you and believe and be encouraged by it that you may walk that walk which God has called you to because you have been made for that. You have been made holy, live holy lives. Let's pray together. Our Lord, how we thank you for the work of your spirit to come into us and to change us. Lord, not only have you not left us to ourselves in giving us your word, but you have also given us power to obey your word. Lord, I pray we would be discontent in our hearts and minds with ourselves where we are comfortable with sin, where we have stopped growing, where we have become content to look like the world around us and to not prove ourselves to be holy. And Lord, again, by your Spirit's work in us, stir us up in those graces. Stir us up by your word. Stir us up toward obedience that we might walk with you, that we might have the joy of walking with you and that you would be well pleased with us.